Acts chapter 4, verse 32, says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power, everybody say great power. Great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, everybody say great grace, was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, you might, that name is usually Joseph, so we're talking about someone named Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Continuing to read into verse uh, chapter 5, you'll, know that the, you'll notice that the train of thought does not end whatsoever. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he, <clears throat> let me explain what's going on. He comes to the apostles with this sum of money that he has acquired by selling this possession, and he has presented it to the apostles as though it were the entire amount that he had gained from the sale of the possession, when in fact it was only a certain portion of it, and it wasn't just a scheme that Ananias was running, but his wife Sapphira knew about it as well. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear, everybody say great fear. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. That was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. It's kind of a sobering passage, isn't it? It's a sobering passage that doesn't usually get a lot of airtime on Sunday mornings. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of airtime. Brother Burke and I were talking briefly before service. It doesn't get a lot of airtime in general. Uh, because it is a sobering passage, it is a little bit of a frightening passage, and we can look at it and we can extrapolate a whole lot of things from it. We can look at it and think, well, this is a passage that's about money. This is a money passage. This is a passage that's about generosity or giving or uh, somehow the internal affairs of the church. It's not, those things are all present in this story, but I would, I would say to you this morning and for our edification today 
that the passage that I've read in your hearing this morning isn't so much about money or possessions or material goods as it is about unity. This is a passage about unity. The church was still young. It was still very early in the church age. They hadn't even ventured outside of Jerusalem yet, and their unity was so precious that we can see in this passage the lengths that God will go to to protect the unity and the mission of the church. You may be seated. I want to minister this morning, uh, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, don't hold back. More than ever before, we need a pursuit of the things of God that matches a profession of our love for the things of God. I'm going to say that again. More than ever, our actions need to match our words. Our actions need to match our words. What we profess to be needs to come out in how we live our life. How much we say we love the Lord must come out in how earnestly, how intensely we pursue the things of God. Let me say it the way that the Apostle James would say it. He would say that faith without works is dead. And I don't want to be overly confrontational this morning, but I don't want to take the edge off of this passage either. If our actions, if our pursuit of the things of God do not match what we say we believe and what our words would say, then we find ourselves in the same category as these people named Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to take another run at it and say it this way. It's not enough just to talk the talk. But the apostolic church must walk the walk. I want to be the real thing. I want to be the real thing, not just in word, but in deed. There's a reason that this book, I said it Wednesday night, there's a reason that this book is called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's not the thought of the apostles. It's not the philosophy of the apostles. It's the actions of the apostles. Because actions that are sep- words that are separated from actions equals hypocrisy. We don't want to be in that category. And so it's common to read this passage, and it's common. It's very easy to look at it and to fixate on the parts of it that deal with money. And there is money, and there are possessions, and there are things that are happening like that. But more than anything, this is about internally the integrity of the church, the character of the church. Is the church everything that we say we are? That's what this passage is about. You may have noticed That as we read, there are a few things that are described as great in this passage. And so it's from those things that I kind of want to anchor us as we go this morning through this passage. The first that you've noticed that we repeated together out loud. In verse 33 of Acts chapter 4. With great power, great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there's a couple ways that the word power is used in the Bible. In this instance, the word power is the word dynamos. It's literally where we get the word dynamite from. There's some forceful about what the apostles are doing. There is great, not just power, but great power in what the apostles are doing as they preach and teach and do ministry in Jerusalem during those days. 
And it was as a result of that display of great power, that dynamic ministry that was happening, that the church had tremendous unity. Because the word of God tells us that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. They were radically unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dynamic ministry of the gospel that was going forth in those days in Jerusalem. There was a spirit that was moving through the streets and in the homes of the people. That caused them to be not just unified, but radically unified. So that they were of one heart, one soul. It even took on the characteristic of everybody literally sharing everything that they had. So that no one claimed anything was actually his own, but everyone had all things common. I'm talking about an explosive power when they were all Involved in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I could say it another way this morning. They knew what the main thing was. They hadn't lost sight of what the main thing was. The main thing was to have a church that's made up of all different kinds of people. We're going to share the gospel everywhere we go. They had locked on to the main thing. The main mission that Jesus had given them. And they were able to do that with such a radical intensity because the word of God testifies and tells us that it wasn't just a handful of them that had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it was everyone had received the Spirit of God. Everybody, Brother Burke, had received the infilling of God's Spirit. Let me tell you what I'm driving at just for a moment. It wasn't just that a few people had decided it was something they wanted as an additional add-on to their spiritual life. It wasn't an optional experience for being a Christian. It was something that if you follow Jesus Christ, if you you professed that Christ is Lord, you would be filled with the gift, you would seek after the infilling of the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there would be some today that would try to say that the infilling of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues is something that is optional. It's something that if if you really want to get serious about the things of God, then you could decide, you could opt in to this other thing, this other experience of being filled with the Spirit of God. But the book of Acts, brothers and sisters, knows nothing of believers who are not filled with the gift of the Spirit. Every believer was filled with the Spirit. That's why when the Word of God tells us what the climate was like in those days, that they were of one heart and one soul. Have you ever thought of it like this? If you take take a machine and you use it to tune a piano, and you tune that piano to where it needs to be tuned to, the wavelength, the frequency, the note, the sound that it's supposed to have, And then you go and you tune a second piano with the same machine. And you do another one and another one and another one. Eventually you have a whole group of pianos that on the, because they are all synced up to a common standard, they're unified in the sound that they're making. That's what happens when we're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Brother Dustin, why is the Holy Ghost important? Well, number one, the Bible says that that same spirit which raised up Jesus from the dead 
is going to quicken your mortal body. If you're not filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you don't have any hope in the resurrection. You must be filled with the Holy Ghost. But here, we're, we're not talking about eternity right this moment. We're talking about Acts chapter 4 and 5. We're talking about some of the internal stuff going on in the church. How does the church behave like the church? It's a good question. And the answer is the same answer. It's the Holy Ghost. Because when every member of the church is filled with the gift of God's spirit, they're all tuned in to a common standard and there is unity. And when there is unity, the church is able to do what the church is called to do. And when there's unity, there's no suspicion. There's no backbiting. There's no gossip. There's no people going one direction and this other group going this other direction. And this group over here has a focus of this. And this group over here is focused on that. There is none of that. There is a radical amount of unity that happens when everybody says, I want to be filled with the gift of God's Spirit. When we're filled with the gift of God's Spirit, when there is a church that is collectively all together filled with the gift of God's Spirit, then we can go forward and we can say, I'm not going to hold anything back. Because you don't have to watch your back. You don't have to wonder if your brother or your sister is for you or against you. When we're all living in the Spirit, not just filled with the Spirit, but led by the Spirit of God, we're all singing in the same key. Maybe not literally. We're all on the same wavelength. We're all humming the same frequency. And when that happens, the Holy Ghost is able to take over. And then all of a sudden, Brother Ryan, it's not about me. And it's not about you. And it's not about what you can do or what you bring to the table. But it's about what God can do. When there's a church of people that are submitted to the Spirit of God. And they'll say, that great power that the apostles testified with. I want that power present in my life. I want to be a conduit for that power. I want the explosive power of God's Spirit moving through me. I'm here to tell you that when, you ever heard that song, when we all get together, I'm not going to sing it. Some of you know that song. I'm telling you this morning that when we all get together and we're all filled with the Holy Ghost and we're all being led by the Holy Ghost and, we're pers- and, and what we are pursuing is the same thing and I don't have to worry about are you pursuing the same thing. We are pursuing the same thing together and we're, lo- we're locked, locked arm in arm in the Spirit. There is absolutely nothing that God will not do. I'm talking about a book of Acts church that said that we are going to turn this world upside down how did it happen it happened when there was a great power that was able to flow that's going to get between us brother Dustin it seems so simple why don't we just why don't we just settle it and say well yeah that's that sounds good there's a miracle that has to take place for that to happen there's a miracle that happens I mean, if you've ever been a part of a group of people that's bigger than three, we can find something to disagree on all the time. In this room, there's a hundred different opinions about a hundred different things. And I'm here to tell you, that's all right. Acts chapter 2 tells us that this group of people, this early church, comprised of several thousand people. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 says they came from all over the place. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, all, all, they, they were pilgrims from all over the known world, all over the Mediterranean, all over the place. They had different cultures, they had different looks, they had different wardrobes, they had different uh, mannerisms, they had different languages that they spoke, they have different values, they have some things that are completely divergent from one another. But when they were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, there was a miracle that took place. And whatever differences they did have, it didn't melt away. One thing started to override over everything else. There was something that superseded everything else that may have been different about them. They were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. They were on mission to make disciples and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you today. If that's the kind of church that you desire to be, if that's the kind of saint that you desire to be, it comes from a place of deciding, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to hold back. They had the same mind. They were of one heart and one soul because they understood what mattered the most. They weren't going to become consumed in petty differences. They weren't going to become consumed by differences and things that were just matters of opinion. They were going to rally around the thing that mattered the most. That this world is wrapping up and we are living in the last days. And if there's ever been a day to be serious about the main thing. If there's ever been a time to say, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to do it half-hearted. I'm not going to be lukewarm. I'm not going to pretend that part is all. I'm going to go all in on the things of God. I'm going to pursue the things of God with everything that I have. Today is that day. Today is that day. And when they were unified to that degree and things were happening as they should, the Bible says that there wasn't just a presence of great power, but that there was great grace. Literally, if we were thinking about it, in very, very literal terms, we would think that it's mega grace. It's ultra grace. This is the environment that the people of God lived in and created when they decided, I'm not going to hold anything back. They were, let me find a way to say it that's going to maybe break through the noise of, of our everyday life and what we've come to take for granted. They didn't take the infilling of the Holy Ghost for granted. And far be it from me this morning to suggest that anybody has reached the point where they're taking the Spirit of God for granted or that you take church for granted. All I wish to say is that this group of individuals in the book of Acts didn't take it for granted. Every day they woke up and they were as excited as they had ever been. It wasn't just emotional excitement, hear me, but it was an excitement that came from the core of who they were. They said, what a great day to live for God. I'm so glad that I know the truth of Jesus. And when they did that, they were so full of God's grace. It had a collective effect. When they had thanksgiving for what was happening among them in those days. It started to overflow to those around them. And it reminds me of that story in the Old Testament where when David was becoming king. When David was becoming king, the custom in those days is when you became the new king, you wiped out the family line of the old king so as to wipe out competition. 
David didn't, David wasn't interested in, in that program entirely. In fact, there was one individual that David knew from the family of Saul, the former king, that he absolutely wanted to get into contact with, and it was a man named Mephibosheth. Try saying that one. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had suffered an accident when he was just a child, and he was lame. Uh, he couldn't walk, and he had to have assistance, and he had to basically... Uh, there was a certain lifestyle that came along with that. There were certain limitations that Mephibosheth had. And David summoned Mephibosheth and said, I want Mephibosheth. Someone go find him and bring him to me. And you have to imagine being in Mephibosheth's shoes that he knew what the possibilities were. He knew that the customs of the day meant that I might, this might be my last day. This could be it. But he started to interact with David, and him and David started to talk. And what David's intention was, he said, Mephibosheth, I don't want to wipe you out, but I want to restore you. I want you to always have a seat at my table. I want you to come, and I want you to feast with me, and I want you to have status, and I want you to have honor. And it says that when Mephibosheth slid up to the table, and he, he, he took his seat with everybody else, his, 2 Samuel says that his response was, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as me? I have to believe there wasn't a single day that went by that Mephibosheth ever took it for granted that he was able to sit at the king's table. Mephibosheth knew what his story could have been, what his story probably should have been. And there wasn't a single day that went by, a single mouthful of food that he ate at the king's table where he wasn't overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. I'm telling you this morning, that is the kind of environment that the early church had. If we want to be a powerful church, if we want to be a dynamic church, if you want so much power of the Spirit that it starts to overflow into the lives of your lost loved ones and it starts to overflow into your home and your workplace and your school and all the different places that we interact with people, it... It comes from an environment of gratitude and genuine grace and excitement about living for God to where we have not for a moment taken for granted what God has done in our life. But we are eager to be a part of what God is doing. I'm eager to lay it all on the table. I don't want to hold anything back because I know what my life could be without Him. And in that environment, it really did produce a way of living where they didn't hold anything back. Where they said, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to give it all that I've got. And then we learn about a man at the end of Acts chapter 4. A man named Joseph. He has a nickname that we know him better by. His nickname was Barnabas. Let me ask a question this morning that may be a little penetrating, but helpful. If there was a group of mature, seasoned believers that came together and formed a little bit of a, a committee of some kind here at the church, when they looked at your life, what nickname would they give you? Is there a quality? Is there a fruit of the Spirit that they, because that's what happened with Barnabas. Barnabas was known as such an encourager. Barnabas was known by his character that for the rest of the New Testament, he's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. For the rest of the New Testament, we scarcely see him referred to by his birth name of Joseph. Almost always we see him referred to by his nickname of Barnabas. Because he had such an overflow in his life 
of not holding anything back. And it's evident because here in the early days of the church, Barnabas is the one that sells everything that he has. He sells this piece of land that he has, and he brings the proceeds to the apostles' feet. And he says, I want to give this to the church. He wasn't doing it under compulsion. He wasn't doing it because anyone made him do it. No one asked him to do it. He did it because there was such an overflow of gratitude. There was such a desire to say, I'm not going to, I don't want to hold anything back. I don't want to leave any potential on the table. I want to give everything I have to God. And he does that. And that's how chapter 4 ends. And chapter 5 begins with that conjunction word, but. And it starts to tell us the story of two other individuals who are their story is told in contrast to what Joseph Barnabas does by selling everything and bringing the total amount of the proceeds to the apostles' feet for the church to use for ministry. Acts chapter 5 tells the story of a man named Ananias and his wife who was named Sapphira. And this is where we are introduced not to great power and not to great grace, but two times in the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5, we are told that there is a climate shift of great fear, great fear, mega fear. Ananias and Sapphira conspire together and make a plan to sell a parcel of ground. They've seen what Barnabas has done. They've seen maybe some of the positive attention that it has given Barnabas. And they say to themselves, I want that kind of positive attention. Let's sell this parcel of land. And let's give it to the church. But let's not give all of the proceeds. Let's only make it look like we're giving all of the proceeds. Let's keep back part of it for ourselves and only give a certain part, God's word says, to the church. And you know the story. We read it together. These 11 verses tell how when Simon Peter was standing there, the Lord quickened him. And Simon Peter knew what was going on and was able to sort out the situation. And he called Ananias out on it. And Ananias fell dead. And then three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, not knowing what had happened with her husband, came in, tells the same lie about the same thing. And the Lord kills her on the spot as well. And they're buried together in a space of just 10 or 11 verses. You ask yourself, Brother Dustin, this is a sobering passage. And what, what's the sin that they've committed here? And you, you might point at it and say it's dishonesty. They lied. And you, you might be right. There's some truth there. You might say, you know what? It was the sin of holding back. They, and you'd be right to say that they did hold back because they did. Uh, but their sin was not that they refused to contribute to the cause because they did contribute something. Their sin was not that they refused to give everything because no one asked them to. Their sin was pretending that part was all. Attempting to make things appear as they were not. My suggestion to you this morning, I don't want to take the edge off of this passage a single bit, is don't play games with God in this area. In all the pages of scripture, you know what I see to be true? That God was never angry about honesty. Honesty never makes God angry. But hypocrisy hypocrisy for the sin of hypocrisy jesus has some of his most pointed words and severe judgment of all and when hypocrisy threatens unity 
you can be sure that it will be met with swift judgment and action by God. Acts chapter 5 verse 2 says, He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Their error didn't begin when they endangered the unity of the church. Their error began when they attacked their own unity, their personal unity. The unity between what I present and what I really am. The word that we use to describe that many times is the word integrity. I know we're not shouting right now, but this, to me, it appears to be a life and death issue. I'm talking about your spiritual integrity. Before this ever manifested in the public sphere, before they were ever had an audience with Simon Peter, it was Ananias and Sapphira sitting in a back room somewhere, compromising on their own personal spiritual integrity. They were carving up their life into what I want to present to others and what I really want to be behind the scenes. And brothers and sisters, I would, I would suggest to you today, there is perhaps no more dangerous thing to do than to play games with God and in this area and say, I'm going to present myself as one thing, but I'm actually going to be this other thing. I'm, ta- I'm still talking about holding back. And if we reach the place where we are holding back and we're saying, I'm going, I want to be thought of in this way. I want to be interpreted this way. I want to have the appearance of this. But I don't want to have the private integrity to back it up. I don't want to have the personal devotion. We put ourselves in a very, very dangerous category. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead that day. Was it because of the money? No. Indirectly. Was it because of the percentage of their giving? No. Not just because of that. Maybe indirectly. What was the direct cause of this scene? The direct cause of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira was hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy. It's that wretched thing that God simply will not stomach when we try to present ourselves that part is all. It's not the same thing. I'm talking about, can I put it in real terms? When we sing, Lord, I surrender all, but we don't. Can I get, am I making it too real this morning? We're talking about the very, we're in the same vein right now. We're talking about the very same thing. When I say I surrender all, I have to mean it. I have to mean it. Don't say you aren't holding back and then hold back. In pretending to give everything and only giving part, instead of being filled with the Spirit, Simon Peter identifies it and says, you've worked with Satan to do this. It becomes demonic. You see how quickly? You see how quickly it goes? And that should tell us how serious it is. 
The fact that we go from Barnabas, the son of encouragement, selling something, giving, and, and great grace and great power, and all of a sudden it seems like the flip of a switch, and now all of a sudden we're in the territory of great fear and two people dropping dead and being carried out the door and buried together that day. It seems like it all happened so fast. That should indicate to us the seriousness of what the Word of God is presenting to us. We must give it all to God. We must say, Lord, I'm not going to have one compartment of my life where I do things my way and another compartment of my life where I try to do things your way. God, I'm either going to be all in or all out. Whether through grace or through fear, the unity of the church will be preserved. God will have a church. God's church will be added to. God's church will multiply. There will be people who keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes it's through grace and sometimes it's through fear. But no matter what the mechanism is, God is at work in it all. God will protect his church. God will not allow anybody to injure his church, whether from outside or inside. God will protect his church. God will go to bat for his saints. God will have his mission fulfilled in the world. He's going to win souls. He's going to turn people to him. He is going to change hearts. He is going to transform lives. The musicians would come. There's always a struggle. There's always a struggle between the selfless Barnabas and the self-centered Ananias. And even within us, even within us, I'm talking about your personal integrity right now. That part of you that is secret. That part of you that nobody knows but you. No one can see it with their eyes. I'm talking about what's on the inner life of a person, of a man, a woman. There is a war that wages between the self-centered Ananias and the selfless Barnabas. What an ideal that we have to strive for, that there would be a man named Barnabas who would sell what he had and bring all the proceeds and do something like that. And the key to it all is the power of the Spirit. More than just the appearance of being the real thing, I want to be the real thing whether anybody sees it or not. I want the power of the Spirit at work even if it never attracts any attention to me, I want to be right with God. The best way to live that I can present to you today is don't hold back. Don't hold back no matter who's watching. Don't hold back. Be in all the way. Be all in in the church. Be all in at home. Be all in everywhere you go. I want radical obedience to the Holy Ghost, not just the appearance of radical obedience. I want it to permeate every part of who I am. I want it to get down into the very fabric, into every fiber of who I am. And if I would offer you a sober warning this morning from the book of Acts, it would be this. Don't allow yourself to present a profession that isn't matched by your actions and what you're really pursuing. It ought to inspire soul searching and honesty with God to say that I want a pursuit of God that matches my profession of God. 
in a world that is telling you to hedge your bets. The book of Acts presents a message to us, simply tells us don't hold back. Something I said a minute ago as we all stand is something that someone in the house of the Lord this morning needs to take to heart. That honesty never made God angry. If you've been presenting one thing, but had this other thing that's actually been going on, if there's been any separation whatsoever, no matter how small, in what you're presenting and what you're actually doing, I want to encourage you before you leave the house of the Lord this morning, find a place with God. Repent of your sins. If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, we can baptize you in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins. And that explosive power of the Holy Ghost, that dynamic ministry of the Spirit, you can experience that today too. It's still present, it's still alive, and it's still working. When somebody lifts their hands toward heaven, let's do that right now and simply says, I'm not going to hold back. These altars are open right now.